0: Luke chapter 14, today we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 14. One of uh, the, the primary themes that Luke stresses in his gospel is that Jesus wants anyone in the kingdom. He wants anyone in the kingdom. No matter how the world looks upon a person, how they look upon a character, a soul, how they marginalize or even despise a person, Jesus Christ wants anyone to be in his kingdom. And if you and I are going to follow him as his faithful disciples, then we must have the same heart for the people of the world. That not only do we want them belonging to Jesus, but we are willing and even desirous to have them in our own lives. Are you willing to have anyone In our church, are you willing to have anyone at all in our home, no matter what they look like, no matter perhaps, um, what their station is in life, or perhaps even how the world would say, you know, that they are worthless or have no ability or nothing to contribute? Are you willing to have them not only in your own life, but are you wanting, do you have the heart to honor such people and to give them the preferred places. Metaphorically speaking, they may not have a seat at the table, but are you willing to give them first seat, the honored places? We must have the heart of Christ if we're going to follow Him faithfully. The law of the Lord Jesus Christ is love. Let's read Luke 14, verses 1 to 14. Hear the word of the Lord. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Father, I I pray that as we strive to follow Jesus, I pray, Father, that we would not make the rules the be all and the end all, but remember that your law is that of love. It's not about rules, but you are about people. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Not the worthy, but the unworthy. Not the righteous, but the unrighteous. And I pray, Father, that with a heart of love, we would, we would follow after Christ in reaching out to the lowly of this world and the despised of this world. Not simply, not only to bring them alongside us, but to lift them up and to give them the honored places. And I pray, Father, that we would do this just not so that they would be seen by others, but so that they would see You, see Your love and Your glory, and be compelled to lay their own lives down in following after Jesus Christ. We thank You, Father, that as we have surely fallen infinitely short of this commandment to love, We thank you that you have loved us nonetheless and Jesus Christ has died to pay the penalty of our sin and by his resurrection we live. Would you please, I pray, Father, give to us your Holy Spirit now so that we would be convicted in our hearts of what we must do and give us your Holy Spirit so that we would have the strength to follow through with obedience to your honor and glory. I pray in Jesus name. Amen. Let's uh, do a little recap for a moment of Luke's gospel. It's going to be concise, and I'm just going to cover it very broadly. But uh, it's been a while uh, since the beginning of July, since we've been in Luke's gospel. So this will help us to get our bearings. We know that Luke wrote this God-breathed book in order that we might be certain. You remember that word, that key word to understand the purpose of this gospel? We, that comes from verses 1 to 4 of chapter 1. When Luke introduced his readers to, to this gospel, he showed very clearly his intention. God wants his people to be certain. Certain of, of what in particular? Certain of the truth of who Jesus is certain of the truth of what he accomplished and certain of the worth of Jesus Christ, certain of the truth of him and certain of the worth of him so that we know absolutely and confidently that re- Jesus really did all that is required for us in our salvation. And he really is worth following all through this life and even unto death. Everywhere and always, he is worth following. He is worth our worship. So beginning in chapter four, obviously skipping forward quite a bit, we saw his power and his glory on display. As again, Luke is helping us to be certain of the truth of him and certain of the worth of him. We saw his power and glory on display as Jesus accomplished the work of God by the word of his power. He rebuked Diseases, demons, even the deep, and even damnation. And all things were submitting to Christ's word. It was several months of showcasing His glory there in the north of Israel in Galilee. And then in chapter 9, Jesus predicted His rejection and suffering and death. And He called those whom He had chosen to follow Him, to follow Him even Here, of course, the disciples who were so enamored with his power and with the miraculous and with the prospect of the coming kingdom didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. But he called them to follow him in this suffering twice in chapter 9. And then we have that that hinge verse in chapter 9, verse 51, when Jesus set his face on Jerusalem, he was moving from the north of Israel to the south and he was going to Jerusalem the capital of the nation, to die. There he would experience the final climactic rejection of the religious establishment and even of the population. One day, there will be reward for following Christ. There will be great reward, so that we'll look back and say, you know, this light momentary affliction had nothing on the eternal weight of glory. But in the meantime... Jesus calls us to deny ourselves and He calls us to take up our cross and to follow Him. And we, we know, as Jesus emphasized in the last couple chapters we covered, that the time is pressing. The time is now. There is no time to procrastinate in putting faith in Jesus and following Him. Our time on this earth is short as far as our years go. We are but a vapor. But we also do not know when Jesus Christ will return. So the time is pressing, and Jesus emphasized that. After Jesus had turned his face toward Jerusalem, he begins to he begins to tell us what life in the kingdom of God is supposed to be, and what we must do, how we must live as the followers of Jesus. We see um, we see this especially as. The opposition against Jesus begins to intensify. And Jesus doesn't back down. He doesn't compromise. He never beats around the bush or glosses over the truth of God. He is very bold and he is very hard hitting. He he doesn't back down. We we see in the opposition of the religious establishment what we must never be you know, self loving, self promoting, loving only those like us. We must never conform to the world's way of life or the world's way of love. Jesus calls us, obviously, to a higher standard. He calls us to kingdom love. He calls us to love as we have been loved. And that means that we love those who have been cast down and we love those who have been cast out. The marginalized of this world and even the despised of this world. We must remember how we have been loved. We must remember who we are and what we deserve from God. And rather than getting what we deserve, what we have been given instead, grace and mercy. And that's what we must extend to all people, the grace and the mercy of God. We must love the people of this world as we have been loved. You know, I haven't seen anyone so loving and so generous and so self-effacing and, and humble in my life as Bill Iza. When I think of someone who is an example of love, and I am not just talking him up because of, you know, this is the time when people get talked up, um, but he is one very much worth emulating, you know, as one who has followed Christ in in love and treating all people equally with respect and with dignity and um, just incredible generosity. Of course, um, he would insist absolutely that I would talk of Jesus. And he would hate to be in the spotlight because we know all are sinners and Jesus Christ alone deserves to be in the spotlight. Um, so let us remember how Jesus has loved. Not a single person whom Jesus loves is equal to Him. Everyone whom Jesus loves is less than Him. Infinitely less. He is God and, and we are not. But But not only that, not only are we less than him in, in that sense, in our essence, but by our sin. You know, we talk about being cast down and cast out, and we have done that to ourselves. And yet God has loved us. And we have the prime example of that in the cross of Jesus Christ. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is a faithful saying and, and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save Sinners, that's who we are. That's what we must remember, how Christ has loved us. And when we remember that, we can show love to others. Let's uh, go over this passage. Verse 1 tells us that this conflict takes place on a Sabbath day. That is by no means uncommon. We have seen that already in the life of Jesus, that the religious especially oppose him for what Jesus does on the sacred day of the Sabbath. On this particular Sabbath, Jesus is invited into the home of a prominent Pharisee to dine with a group of the religious establishment. And we see that their intent is not good. They don't simply want mealtime fellowship with Jesus. They're hunting him down. They're actually baiting him. They're hunting him to expose him and to destroy him. They want to uncover anything that they can to bring Jesus down. And so when Jesus first speaks to them, it's as a response because he knows their hearts. They think that they're going to gain some kind of inside track on Jesus and get ahead. But nobody has the inside track on Jesus. He knows their hearts. He knows the evil intent of their thoughts. And so when he speaks to them, reading, knowing their thoughts, it's a response. And he says to them in the second, third verse there, is it lawful to heal a man on the Sabbath or not? I think that they had taken a particular man and planted him there in that he wasn't just, you know, invited to come along to the meal as someone who's in, whose company they enjoyed. This, uh, this condition that this man had called dropsy is more uh, well-known today as edema. And in this condition... Uh, A person has excess fluid and extreme swelling of the limbs and the belly. And their condition is obvious just from one look at them. But the religious establishment of that day thought that this condition was indicative of gross sin. So this man would have been under their judgment. They haven't invited him to this meal, you know, because they like him. They want to expose Jesus in the process because they know Jesus is going to do something about it. Christ, knowing this, says to them, is it lawful to heal a man on the, heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, here's where we get into their rabbinic tradition. Their tradition said that it wasn't lawful to heal on the Sabbath day unless this was a condition of extreme duress. Unless, you know, the, there could only be action taken if, if death was a real possibility. That's what their tradition said. But the Bible says they don't answer in verse 4. They remained silent. If they said that, yes, healing is lawful, then what would they be doing? They would be propping up the ministry of Jesus and putting down their tradition. And that's the last thing that they want to do. They're intent on bringing Christ down. They don't want to prop Him up in any way at all. But on the other hand, if they say that, Healing isn't lawful on the Sabbath. What does their tradition look like? It looks like a bunch of garbage. It looks as hideous as it actually was. And so they don't want to be exposed either as being, you know, cold and heartless. So what option do they have? Jesus has obviously turned the tables on them and exposed them and their tradition. And all they can do is keep quiet. And so the Bible says that Jesus simply acts. He takes the man, he heals him, and he sends him on his way, probably to spare the man the the antipathy of the, the Pharisees. But he sends him on his way, and then he turns back to the Pharisees, and he asks them a very pointed question. He says, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? The question here is a rhetorical one. It has an obvious answer. The obvious answer is that they would do all they could to spare and to help their own, and they would act immediately. But they will only take action if inaction is going to cost them. Right? They will only take action if inaction is going to cost them personally. They don't care about this man They don't care about the condition of other people. They only care about themselves and what they have. And so Jesus has exposed them for loving only themselves. And he has exposed their hideous, heartless tradition. Now, we know, don't we, that from the beginning and the giving of the law, that the Lord did restrict work on the Sabbath day. We have... In Israel's history, we have sacred space and sacred time. The sacred space is the tabernacle or the temple that followed. And the sacred time was the seventh day. Because on the seventh day, after completing the work of creation, God rested. And so God restricted work on the Sabbath day, not only for people, all the people in Israel, no matter how high or how low they were, but even for beasts of burden, as we might call them. They were not to be put to work either. So why did God give us give us this? Why did God restrict work on the Sabbath day? Because God wanted us to have rest and to be renewed. Renewed physically and renewed spiritually in a day that is consecrated to the Lord together. So God would lift our burdens. That's why he gave us the Sabbath. That's why we have a day of rest. And it's important principle even after the passing of the Old Testament law. And There's so much we could say about the Sabbath. But it's an important thing that we have rest in our lives. And we have that together in a day consecrated to Him. But He gave us this day to lift our burdens. Not to increase our burdens, not to confine us, not to suppress us, but to help us. In fact, Jesus said in Mark chapter 2, the Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath. So now we need to ask you a question. If God gave us this day to renew us and to strengthen us, how does that happen? It doesn't just happen as we sit and as we relax and just passively kind of receive the rest of God. We are renewed physically and we're renewed spiritually and emotionally As we minister to each other. As we serve one another, right? Doesn't the Lord lift our burdens as we bear one another's burdens? And aren't we strengthened as we build each other up? So the, the day of rest is not simply, um, relax and do nothing, um, be passive but we receive the blessing of God as we serve one another. And my whole point is to lead it to this. How much sense then does it make for them to say that healing is not lawful on the Sabbath day? When that would achieve the very thing that God intended to take place on the day of rest. It doesn't make any sense at all. It's pretty stupid in fact. And what we call this stupidity Is legalism. It's legalism. I'll talk more about that in a moment. But we we come down to verse 6. And it says that they could not reply to these things. It's very telling that these men have nothing to say now. Their sin has been exposed. But rather than confessing their sin and repenting. They stay unmoved at Jesus. What he has done. What he has said. Cold to Christ. Uh, Let me plug something in here when you when you read the word and when you hear the word and your sin is exposed do you stay silent when the lord convicts you of lovelessness do you stay silent when he shows you that you are being selfish do you stay silent or do you turn to him do you confess to him do you repent before him and do you return to love Let's, when you look at these men, I, I, you think, man, a bunch of fools. I don't want to be like that. But it's so easy to be like that and to be deceived into thinking that we're not like them when very often we are. Let's talk about legalism. We are naturals at legalism and we are very poor at love. What is legalism? Uh, we talk about the word or we use the word legalistic a lot. But obviously, once you drop uh, the suffix there, what you hear is legal, rules, law. Legalism is being all about the rules. Let me give you three things. Legalism stresses outward rule keeping and not the heart. It's not bad to emphasize obedience. In fact, it is right and it's necessary. But legalism stresses outward obedience, outward rule-keeping. And second, the rules that it emphasizes are man's rules, man's laws. And it takes those rules and it puts them on par with the law of God. So it stresses outward rule-keeping and not the heart. And it elevates man's rules to the place of God's law. And then third, legalism promises salvation by those works. Whether we're talking about actually gaining justification, righteousness before God, or simply keeping grace. Let me say that again. Legalism always promises salvation. Whether we are talking about actually gaining justification from God, or... Simply, and this is more common, at least in the church, simply keeping grace. Legalism has crept into the heart of the Christian whenever we feel that we have more grace by our works and less grace without them. And we know that grace has nothing to do with works except that it produces them. Grace does not require our works. Grace is free. Grace is what changes us. Grace is what gives us new life and sets us on a new course and strengthens, strengthens us for all obedience. So that even if we say, you know, like Paul, Paul said in First um, Corinthians, he said, I worked harder than all of them. Speaking about the other apostles, he said, I worked harder than them all, but it was not me, but the grace of God within me but we become very legalistic when we're on as uh one preacher jerry bridges recently passed away wonderful theologian we need more of his books in our library anyway he called it the performance treadmill and when we live on the performance treadmill we think that we are gaining the favor of god by our works that we're actually gaining grace The more we work, the more grace we have, and the the less we work, then the less grace we have. And that's legalistic. That's being all about the rules. And our relationship with God is not that way. What it means, you know, when you're on the, the performance treadmill to just keep on going with that analogy, is we're not getting anywhere. We're not making any progress in our Christian lives. And we're burning out, too. That's what happens when you live on the performance treadmill. This is one thing that the the people of God have to get in their hearts. That what rules, what oversees our relationship with God is not law. We're not under law. We are under grace. And it's in grace that we stand. That's freedom. But legalism, being all about the rules of men and so on, That's that's binding. That's slavery in legalism. Everyone is worse off and God is not served in the least because legalism is always of the flesh and not of the spirit. Let's keep moving on to our next verses. We can see that, uh, again, Jesus is turning the tables because, you know how the, the passage started at this meal? They were baiting Jesus and they were trying to watch him, trying to expose him now he is observing them and he has noticed something it's not surprising that these legalistic self-important pharisees are jockeying for position around the dining table typically in that day when there was some you know major feasting done it was done in a uh, horseshoe shape and and the host would sit at that closed end right in the middle and the, the favored positions, the places of honor, were on his immediate right or left. So you could just, I'm imagining, projecting a little bit, but you can imagine these self-important, self-promoting Pharisees trying to be subtle, but being very shrewd as they work the room. And they try to work their conversations around to the host. They're maneuvering their way so that they're hoping that right when the dinner bell rings, they are right there for the seat of honor. And for some reason, I have in my mind what happens in musical chairs when the music stops and one chair is you know, pulled away. And it's just a mad scramble for the available seats. This is what the Pharisees were doing. Jockeying for the best place at the table. And so Jesus, noticing this, has some instruction for them. But I want you to, I want you to realize something, because at first glance, this text might seem rather odd. Like, Jesus is actually encouraging being shrewd in this way. Like, he is giving us some instructions about how we can save face in social situations. But that's not what's going on in this text. Notice one of the key words here, in verse 7, right away, it says, He told them a parable. So what follows this instruction about you know the wedding feast and so on, it's a parable. Because Jesus is not telling you and me how we can save face in social situations and end up looking good and not looking bad. He is telling us about life in the kingdom. He is commanding us, commanding in us, humility in our relationship with others and in our relationship with God. So let's uh let's sum up the parable. I'm not going to take the time to reread it. Let's sum it up. He says that at a wedding feast, it's not the noble thing and it's not the wise thing to get the very best seat that you can. Because this this was an an honor shame culture and the honored places, you know, were the places closest to the host. So Jesus said that's not wise. It's not honorable, it's it's not noble for you to get the best places, because what's going to happen if you do that is when someone comes who's more respectable than you, the host is going to bring that more respectable person and say, listen, you're in their spot, and they're going to send you packing. Now, that's the worst imaginable thing that can happen to someone who lives for self-promotion, is public demotion. You know, that's going to get all kinds of people talking behind your back and making all kinds of faces. won't be able to hide the, the shame and embarrassment that you would feel. So he says, instead of doing that, take the lowest place. Because then when the host comes and sees you, the host will say, friend, move on up. This is not where you belong. Go higher. But this is a parable. And Jesus brings it to a climax of verse 11 where he says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So you can you can see by the use of a parable that Jesus is not commending false humility. He is urging on us humility in our relationship with others and in our relationship with God. The person who thinks that they're special, that they're a cut above, is deceived and is going to be humbled by God. That's the point. That it is God who does the humbling and God who does the exalting. God will exalt the person who counts others as more worthy than they are. God gives to us this word in First Peter. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, He may exalt you. Those who know themselves truly are going to be those who are humble. If you don't know yourself, you're going to be proud. You're going to think that you are something by your appearance or by your achievements, by, you know, some special skill that you have that others don't in some kind of technical thing or whatever. Those who don't know themselves are going to be proud. If you spot pride in your own life, then you have some ignorance about who you are, a measure of ignorance. It's the people who realize that They should be condemned by God. That they don't deserve anything good from God. That all that they have from God is grace and mercy. That they can take another breath is the grace of God. It's those who know those things who have received His grace and extend it to others. These are the people that God will exalt in due time. But the proud people, the vain people, they don't stoop to suffer. They will not stoop to suffering. They always insist on their own way. They do not entrust themselves to God who judges justly. But when they are done wrong, they always have a comeback. They always have a retort. They always insist on their own rights in this life rather than keeping quiet and entrusting themselves to God and looking forward to the reward that He has to give in His kingdom. The Bible says we will be glorified with Christ. We will be exalted if we suffer with Him. Romans chapter 8. We will be glorified with Christ if we suffer with Christ. So our ultimate example is Jesus and His humility. The Most High God, the Holy Son, who inhabits eternity, took on the nature of the creature, added to Himself, added to the divine nature, a human nature, and was made most low. He was laid down in that wooden trough at His birth, and He laid His life down on that wooden cross in His death. And at all times and spaces in between, He humbled Himself. And in the end, hanging upon the cross, His naked, exposed body, Shredded and mutilated. Beaten beyond human recognition. Impaled there. He bore the guilt of our sin. He bore our shame. That's the cost of our salvation. What in the world do we have to be proud of? That's what our lives have earned. That's what it took. It took that much To save you and me. Proud Christian. If ever there was an oxymoron, that's it. Proud Christian. What good do you and I have that was not given to us by the grace of God? We have no room for pride. If we know ourselves and we know our God, it will drive pride from our hearts. So what will the humble do? Let's read verses 12 to 14. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now I need to explain something and I'm taking a risk in explaining that. It because I don't want you to dismiss what Jesus says completely. But when Jesus says, don't have your friends and your family over for dinner, he doesn't mean it completely, literally, like never have family over. That would differ from so much of what Scripture says. But you can think of it like this. Do you remember when Jesus said that we must hate Our mother and father and wife and brother and sister and houses and lands and all of that. Remember when he said hate? Well, we're not taking him absolutely literally because we know that what he means is in comparison to our relationship with Jesus and the love we have for him, that every other love is so much less, so much less. And it's this way as well. This is... Why Jesus is speaking in this. He, he wants to grab your attention. And he, he wants us to realize that we must not serve others either to be, we must not have the aim in life just to be seen. Well, you know, why did the Pharisees and the lawyers want to get the best places at the dining room table? Because they wanted to be seen. They wanted to be the object of others' envy and so on. But the Christian life is not the aim to be seen. And it's, we're not serving in order to be served, which is what the proud do. You know, they'll serve. They will serve. But always with the aim of getting repaid. In like. That's not us. We must serve from the heart with zero expectations of others giving good back to us because we are looking forward to the reward. That is God's reward in God's kingdom in eternity. And that's how Jesus calls you and I to live. The reward is not being seen. And the reward is not getting paid back. One, there is one similarity that I want you to think about to the similarity is we want to get close to the host too. Like they wanted to get close to the host. We want to get close to the host too. But our aim is not to be seen, but to see. To see. And here I'm talking about not a host who is mere man, but to God who is our host, who prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. And the Lord Jesus Who is our host at that great feast to come? He will wait on them, he promises. We saw that in Luke a couple chapters ago. We want to get close to the host. Not to be seen, but to see. We want to see him. Isn't this the great desire of your heart? You're a Christian, right? You're a Christian? You put your faith and hope in Jesus? Why? Not just to be, not just to be spared the sufferings of eternal punishment in hell. But to see him, you want to know him, you want to be with him. That's the great longing of your heart, to be with Christ and to behold his glory, just as he prayed for in John 17, when he prayed that we would be with him, to see him, to see his glory, which God had given to him. That's the hope of our hearts. 1 John 3, you know, uh, where it talks about how we will see him, We don't know what we will be. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we will see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself as He is pure because we want to see Christ. We want to behold His glory. Why? Because that's the thing. It's the glory of His wisdom, the glory of His holiness, the glory of His power, the glory of His love. That has won our hearts. That has won us. That is the most compelling thing, the alluring thing, the most beautiful thing there is. Now we see it by faith. But we want to see it with those sanctified, glorified eyes. And one day we will. So Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So we purify ourselves and we humble ourselves and we serve not to be seen but with the promise that one day we will see. We will be close to the host. We will be seated with Him. We will, in fact, reign with Him. And the joy of it all is that we will see ever eternally more of His infinite glory. That's our desire. And so, how do we serve? Who should we serve? Well, all, obviously. But especially, Jesus is always pointing us in Luke's gospel to the neglected. In every list where he talks about what he had come to do, you know, think back to Luke chapter 4 when he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. In every list like that where he says what he has come for, and he talks about, you know, the lame, the blind, or the oppressed, the captive, whatever... He always says the poor, the neglected, the marginalized of this world, or even the despised of this world. That's why he tells us the parable of the good Samaritan, the man who is hated by the Jews. Um, Why he'll tell us the parable of the prodigal son and so on. The sinners, the low, that's whom we must serve from the heart. And so I ask you again, as I did at the beginning, do you want anyone in this church? And do you want anyone beside you in this church and in the Christian life on the way to glory? Are you willing to have anyone? And not only that, but do you want in the heart of love to honor such, to actually give to them the preferred places? Because that's what Jesus is talking about. We don't jockey for position and the best seats. We move away from them, but not to leave them empty. We want those seats to be filled, the places of honor. And Jesus tells us to give the places of honor and preference to the very people that the world despises, to honor them, to lift them up. And our motivation for doing this is not all of a sudden to say, wow, look at them. You know, it's not so that they can be seen themselves, but so that they can see too, the host. So that they can see Christ and the glory of His love and have their hearts one to Him too. That is why we extend the love of God to the disfavored of the world. Because that's who we are spiritually. And yet Christ... The high, the holy, who inhabits eternity, set his love upon us. Those cast down and those cast out by their own doing. And he brought us to himself and he raised us up. And our hearts are won by that love. And that's what we want to give and pour out into this community, to all those who are around us. We want to lift up the despised of this world, not so they can be seen, except... Well, to know that God sees them and so that they can see his love, the glory of his love, and have their hearts won. Let's pray. Father, help us to be like this. Lord, help us not to give in to all of the, 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 the honor-shame culture of this world. Help us not to give in to the, the prejudices of this world to the contempt, to the vanity and the pride and to the one-upmanship and all of that, to always wanting to get ahead of others and to leave people behind in our dust. I pray, Father, that we would have the heart of Christ. Lord, we ask for Your forgiveness because we know that we are guilty and we praise you that Jesus Christ died paying the penalty of our sin. We also know that he rose so that we may live and he poured out his Holy Spirit so that we may return to obedience in gratitude for your grace, Lord. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, we may change away from this world to be like Jesus and we may love Grow in love. So help us, Lord. Help us all. And Lord, if there is someone here who has not been won by Your love in Jesus to You, if they have not turned from their own way and put faith in Jesus to be saved, I pray, Father, that they would bow before Christ and say, My Lord and my God, the only life worth living is for You. The only hope that there is, is in you. I pray, Father, that all here would have faith in Jesus and all would be changed. Changed to being loving, showing love as we have been loved. In Jesus' name we pray, and for His sake, amen.